The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. This week, are interns destroying the value we place in work? Can we increase social mobility by reforming work experience? Or should they just be abolished? We welcome our own unpaid worker into the studio, alongside the author of a major new expose of this unpaid labour force. This is The Business from The Guardian. If you're a new or recent graduate struggling to find a job, chances are you're looking for an internship. In the US alone, up to 2 million people take up internships every year, around three quarters of all undergraduates. Many of them are unpaid or below the minimum wage. But are they being exploited? What do they get out of the bargain? In the studio, we have the author of a new book, Intern Nation, Ross Perlin, The Observer's economics editor, Heather Stewart, and a week into his own work experience at The Guardian, Christian Erickson. Welcome to you all. I, you know, I don't know your name. Exactly. Lyle, Lyle the intern. Oh, Lyle, how you doing? Oh, Lyle the intern. Yeah, oh, people call me right. Lyle. And Easy way to remember it, just think Lyle the intern. Uh-huh. Okay, and uh, are you a college kid? Where did you go to school? Uh, school of life. Right. right. <laughs> Uh, I couldn't be happier that you're part of the intern program, Lyle, but, uh, you know, we're right in the middle of a show. That's cool, man. Relax. Don't want to squeeze your yam bags or nothing. Ross Perlin, let's start with you. That clip we just heard from David Letterman, this idea that you're just known as the intern around the office, the dog's body, how close does that correlate to the experience of the intern? Uh, It's fairly true to life. Interns are often known as intern, the intern. They're sort of intern rows and internias in many offices, places where the interns are kind of anonymously clustered and called upon as needed for random menial tasks. Often interns are not around long enough for people to get to know them, for people to know their names. In many cases, regular staffers don't make the effort, don't care to make the effort. Is is some of this based on your own personal experience, Ross? A little bit is. I did an internship here in London several years ago, and I think my name was known to uh, some of the people there, but perhaps not to all. Uh, I think the attitude of many of the many of the full-time employees was, well, these people are just sort of cycling through their sort of faceless minions, random peons, and we can sort of use them for what, what work we have here and there, but there's no point in getting invested in them or, or getting to know them much. So you've told us about your internship with an NGO. How far does the phenomenon of the internship go? The internship phenomenon has now spread to just about every sector of the white-collar workforce. In the blue-collar world, internships are still a relative rarity. But you see internships on on organic farms. You see them at major, huge multinational corporations in in, in finance and in you know, engineering and things like that. But you also see them in startups. Disney in your in your book. Tell us about that. Disney World in, in Florida runs one of the largest internship programs in the country. Seven to eight thousand interns cycling through each year, working for minimum wage, flipping burgers, picking up trash and that sort of thing, but under the guise of an educational experience endorsed by literally hundreds of colleges and universities across the U.S. You've got quite a big description of, of how you broke into Disney World and found, <laughs> found where these interns are kept. Tell us about this. Well, the interns are they're forced to live on Disney property in, in these sort of intern compounds, these internship cities where there are literally thousands of interns kind of stacked, usually four or more, to a small apartment. They're on the kind of Disney meal plan. Their schedules are entirely dictated by Disney. These are not summer internships either. They work depending on Disney's manpower needs, you know, interrupting their own their own education. It's a Do very strange program. Credits for this is that is that why many of them get academic credits uh, for which they have to pay their schools at the same time. So they are they are in many cases actually losing money on the bargain because they're paying 
often several thousand dollars to their to their schools back thousands of miles away, yeah. schools from which they're not receiving any particular uh, services or anything at the time. No. <laughs> um, no, no classes, nothing like that, or very little going on. This started back in the early 1980s as a program with just a few hundred people, a sort of handshake deal with the, the main unions that represented the workers at, at Disney World, uh, because it was thought, well, this would simply be a kind of a way to cover some extra work during particularly busy periods at Disney World. But in that loophole, it's grown into a massive program, which now, it, at some workplaces within Disney World, more than half of the people you see running around, whether it's the people in the sort of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse costumes, or whether it's just people sort of picking up trash and parking cars as valets are working in hotels, where these people may well be interns. So the program has grown huge. It's grown beyond the union's control. They hate it, but there's almost nothing they can do about it. It displaces or replaces all kinds of regular workers. So this massive program has grown up, and the reason they were able to bring it to scale and is the involvement of educational institutions, of higher education. Literally, there are, you know, flacks for this program at career services offices across America who are telling their students to go do this, that it will be the best experience of their lives, who are inviting Disney recruiters onto campus and endorsing what they're, what they're doing. Uh, and so they're able to get these thousands of young people. And by the way, this is not just in America, I mean, not just in America, but there are interns from 19 different countries, last time I checked, at Disney World doing this internship program. So a thousand of those, seven to eight thousand, are usually international interns as well, going to the United States under fairly dubious cultural exchange visas, but in fact flipping hamburgers. Christian. Yes. our own live intern in the studio. Do you feel exploited? Um, not really. Since I'm doing a, a media or journalism internship, then my experience is very important when I'm trying to get a job in the future. And I think that sort of works both ways because um, media corporations take on interns to do sort of the crappy jobs that they don't, they don't want to do. But at the same time, I get experience from doing that sort of work and um, I get a foot into the business, I get contacts and, and I get to see how things work really. And you've done a number of these internships. I've done a couple. Uh, I've been to a local paper last year uh, in London. I've been to a production company back home in Sweden uh, for two weeks. And uh, then obviously we do a couple of things in university and outside of uh, university as well. Heather, speaking as people who work for The Guardian, we've had a number of people who come through on internships and a number of them go on to do quite well for themselves, don't they? Yeah, indeed. I mean, so, sometimes people are, are spotted. Of course, once you're under the nose of managers and, and editors and you're able to perhaps, when staff are short, you're able to prove yourself and get the bylines. And, and you know, actually people realise that you've got the talent and, and, you know, some people go far. You yeah. build up a cut, cuttings book in a couple of years, you hope Absolutely. Yeah. But whether that's a particularly fair way of, <laughs> of recruiting people, you know, of course, we all know there are, there are many talented people, you know, outside the building who'd never get the opportunity to come and be under the noses of, of people, you know, who can offer them jobs. Okay, well, you've brought us on very neatly, Heather, to um, how this has played out in British politics recently Mm. because Nick Clegg attracted cries of hypocrisy back in April when he announced a strategy to open up internships to everyone but then revealed that he'd got his first proper job after his millionaire dad had a word. We have published today very clear new rules which mean that anyone who's applying for internships to uh, uh, Liberal Democrat MPs, and this wasn't the case, I was gobsmacked when I came into government and saw in Whitehall, which is there for the public, funded by the public, there were these informal internships. That wasn't fixed by Labour. We're now, we're now fixing it. It means that from now on, people who are, who are advertising for internships in Liberal Democrat offices or Liberal Democrat MPs will have to make sure that the applications are name and school blind and that there's proper remuneration so that we give new people opportunities 
opportunity right. to participate but, in that kind of political but, activity. Heather, is Nick Clegg right to want to open up internships? He's absolutely right, and he's right that... It seems to me there are a growing number of jobs that it's including the media, unfortunately, that it's quite hard to get into without showing that you've done some unpaid uh, internship. And, and of course, if you can't afford the living expenses in London, where most of these jobs are, and if you don't have the contacts to get your name on a list somehow or to get yourself a week or two somewhere, it's very difficult to get that kind of experience. And then you're behind, you know, before you've even started your career. So, I, I you know, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, the reason he, he came a cropper was A, because he had started his own career with an unpaid internship based on the connections of his father. And B, this was meant to be the government's answer to the problem of social mobility. That was how it was built and it seemed like a piffling little measure compared to the scale of the problem that they were facing. But I, I don't think that means that what he was doing wasn't perfectly sensible. Christian, when you were telling us about your experience of doing internships, the majority of people that you meet who are also doing the same sort of thing as you, how are they sustaining themselves? The most people I've, I've met who are doing it are students. So they obviously do it during um, term. Uh, so they've got the student loans to live on still and... If they do it within, within London and they can travel on the um, same sort of travel pass that they've already got, so that wouldn't be an extra expense in that sense. Obviously, I just finished my degree, but I'm still living off my student loan, which I can probably do for another month or so. But then I can't be doing work work for free anymore. I would need something that would pay money. So it's a bit of a, you need to be able to keep a budget and just uh, make ends meet, which can be tri- tricky and difficult. Are there a lot of sort of other undergraduates or recent graduates who you see doing work experience who are effectively living off their parents' money and only able to do it because they're living off their parents' money? Um, to an extent, yes. It is difficult, especially if, if you haven't been able to do it during uh, your education and then and you need to do it after your education, then some people obviously don't have money, any money left, so they need might need to do it, live off their parents. But then... If you go in and try to find a job and you don't have any experience, then you're not going to get a get, get a good job, and you have to start somewhere. So, either you start from the bottom in a in a very low position job, or you try to do internships first and then try to get to a, a higher position straight away. Ross, who's excluded in intern culture? Well, first off, uh, those who don't attend university to begin with are almost completely excluded. Uh, or those who don't go to better-known universities with the resources, with the kind of name brand uh, that allows people to go out and, and land an internship. So so first off, you have all those people who are effectively consigned then to the blue-collar world as internships become the kind of gateway to the white-collar workforce. And with with the white-collar workforce being the sort of site of you know high-paying, influential jobs in, in a service-based economy, this is a serious problem. But then even even at, at another level, within those who do attend university, uh, there's a real division between people like Christian here who, you know, can do this for brief periods of time. But when the student loan runs out or, or as soon as they're out of school, they have to, you know, they have to move on and find paying work. So as you see the rise of kind of postgraduate internships, as you see people doing this during gap years or doing this as they kind of tread water while they're waiting for a regular job to materialize, those people are going to be much more likely to come from well-heeled backgrounds or to be making a very significant sacrifice, working on the side, bartending, you know, evenings or something like that, doubling down on student loans, going deeper into debt, which will cause problems later on. So you see a significant portion of people excluded. In in, in the U.S., I can say that you really are, are talking about 70, 80 percent of young people 
who effectively cannot do more than brief work experience. When you have kind of one week, two week sort of things here and there, most people can manage it, especially while they're students. But as people increasingly need to do, you know, three, four, five internships of longer and longer duration, that excludes really people who uh, are not, you know, middle class and above, or, or even indeed upper middle class. I suppose the comeback to what you've just said is, if it's so hard for these students to go into these sorts of professions and the kind of rewards that they get within these professions probably aren't that great anyway once they're in at the junior level, why on earth don't they just go and choose something else better to do? I mean, why become a journalist? Why not go and become something more useful like a banker or something? Well, arguably, you know, the, the youth labor market and internships send a certain message about, you know, the supply and demand in the, in, the, in the workforce. You know, you could say people should just sort of accept those messages and say, well, I came from a working class background, therefore the media is not for me. Therefore, I won't, be able, I, I won't be able to work unpaid. I won't be able to do this sort of thing. But we as a society need to consider what the larger effect of that, of that is. We're going to have a much narrower range of voices you know, that we hear in the media, for instance, if we exclude people from those backgrounds. The same goes for politics. The same goes for the arts. And all of these so-called glamorous professions where the, the rock star cool jobs are, which you know, lots of young people want to break into. And we tell people that you can do whatever you want when you grow up, especially in the U.S. This is something that is always told to, to, to people growing up, to children. Dream big, do whatever you want. If we want to go back on that, we would effectively be telling people, well, your father was in construction, so you know you should be in construction as well. Well, not construction. You can go yeah. into nuclear power plant building if you want. I mean, you can go into very well-remunerated jobs. It's just, why would you go into cruddy work for free in industries where you're not guaranteed of a place? Well, if you want to go into building nuclear power plants or something like that, you still are going to need probably higher education. You may yeah, but you need don't, a graduate degree. There's not a great culture internships in internships in engineering. There's a culture There's of internships, apprenticeships. but it's often, often paid for yeah, yeah, or, or, yeah. or their apprenticeships. It's a very different status. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there, more of the investment will be in, in education. I mean, education still represents in some ways the kind of elephant in the room. That's even, I mean, as, uh, as Heather was saying, you know, a, a sort of measures surrounding internships without addressing education are kind of piffling because, you know, much more debt, of course, is accrued while going through one's education. You know, earnings are, are deferred, you know, in theory while, while one is in school. So it's, it's true that one can, you know, try to avoid all of those professions where unpaid internships stand as a barrier to entry. But increasingly, that means avoiding a whole huge sector of work, a whole, you know, a huge area of, of white-collar work, not just, uh, not just sort of media, art, media, the arts, publishing, but also, you know, things like public relations and marketing. I mean, increasingly, a whole range of fields. So, you know, again, we're kind of excluding people from all of these areas, or we're telling them, you know, we're sending them a signal, don't go here unless you can afford to pay to play. Uh, and, you know, as, as the range of, of professions where internships are crucial becomes wider and wider, it becomes harder and harder to just sort of steer around that and to find a, find a profession where you don't have to do that. That's why it's become so politically explosive and that's why Nick Clegg tripped over on this issue because, you know, we've got a situation where youth unemployment is 20% among 18 to 24-year-olds where people are seeing the spectre of paying £9,000 a year for their degree. And my goodness, you could pay all that money, come out at the end of it and, you know, the door is still shut in your face. I mean, that, that's why this has become quite politically sort of spicy here I think. Yeah but isn't there a there's a signaling problem right because in the kind of industries we're talking about media, politics, development, publishing etc etc these areas where you don't necessarily need 
highly technical skills what you need to do is show some kind of aptitude and perhaps have some kind of experience that would be handy too mm. so how do you get that if you don't have an internship or, it's extremely or difficult I mean I think there are two if you look at someone's CV and they've had several internships in the media or marketing or whatever mm. it could signal two things it could one of two things it could signal that they're extremely determined and and you know perhaps like Christian here have been very good at you know sending their CV in calling people up you know not letting the door be slammed in their face or it might demonstrate something completely different, which is that mummy or daddy or someone else they know happens to have contacts in this industry and has managed to get them a week or two here or there. And, and actually, it's quite difficult if you're looking at someone's CV to tell which is which. And again, if you come from the wrong educational institution, you know, that that's, makes it even harder. Christian, the kind of world that Ross is describing, that's quite dystopian, isn't it? He's overdoing the gloom there. You do need to really be determined in what you want to do. I can take myself for an example. My dad is a, is a banker. My sister studies economics. And it was quite clear that I was supposed to do the same thing. But I figured out I didn't want to do that. I don't know how to count properly a budget and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, I went into this and uh, then now I have to obviously take the consequences and, and do what I have to do to get a proper job in it. I don't think that needing to do internships and, and work for free should keep you from doing what you want to do. You might have to work a bit harder to get to your goal. But, but you're, I don't hear from you any sort of resentment at the fact that you have to do these fr- bits of free um, work. Not at the moment. Uh, obviously, I just finished my, my degree now. Um, if this doesn't lead to a job within a short time, then there may be, because I might have to do even more after this period now, which uh, can be quite quite a bad thing if I can't afford to to do it but on the other hand every job in the world is going to look for the person who's got the most experience they're not going to go for someone who doesn't know what they're doing and who's mm. just got a piece of paper saying that you you paid for a degree so experience will always be important and the best way to get that is to do internships at the moment i think i feel well uh, christian that brings us neatly to the employer's perspective because we went and talked to the guardian's own managing editor liz ribbons and here she defends work experience I think work experience done properly can be a very useful tool for social mobility. Many of us on on staff at The Guardian will have um, done periods of work experience when uh, we were students or recent graduates and found it absolutely invaluable. But it's very important that opportunities are there for everybody and we have a positive action programme aimed exactly at finding fresh young voices who might not otherwise have found us. Heather, do you think that most of the journalists around you, as Liz was just saying that clip, do you think that they, they came in through a period of work? I'm not sure it was quite such... I think it's become much more common among sort of 20-somethings than it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. A lot of people did student journalism and the traditional route was to do student journalism and then maybe to get a job on a local paper. So there's a lot of people who've done that. It was a paid that. apprenticeship. Exactly, yeah. exactly. A lot of people have done that. But I, I know fewer people who started by doing work experience. But having said that a lot of my contemporaries at university did start their working lives by living with their parents or friends of parents or whatever in London and doing something unpaid for weeks or months I couldn't afford to do that so it wasn't an option but I I do know plenty of people who did start their careers in that way. Okay Ross if we take uh, as accepted that we move from paid apprenticeships to a world of unpaid internships what do we do to make that better? Well, the the experience and the transition that, that Heather just described is what I describe in, 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 in my book, Intern Nation, just writ large, a thousandfold, happening across the board, across the world in, 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 in a number of professions, where there originally were sort of alternate 
paid paths into a career. Now this idea of working unpaid has become kind of completely normalized. And in terms of people living at home and, and of sort of deferring traditional milestones of adulthood, it's much more common now than it used to be. People are delaying moving to their own place, buying a house, getting married, having children. All these traditional milestones of adulthood are being deferred in a, in a phenomenon talked about sometimes as prolonged adolescence, precisely because people are not finding regular jobs. They're cycling from one internship to another, or one unpaid experience to another. Uh, so the question is, yeah, where do we, what do we, what do, what do we, what do we do about this? I think we have to roll back the culture of of unpaid work. Uh, I think the the traditional idea of work experience as a as a, a very brief job shadowing period where you're a fly on the wall, maybe doing a few things here and there uh, for a week or two has no problems. I don't think anybody would say that that needs to be paid for. But when you have people working for you know several months, when you have it becoming a norm in whole professions, I think you have a serious problem. And I think you either need to see you know the government step in and say you know we have minimum wage laws here and they're not being followed. Or you need to see, you know, employers really kind of taking it upon themselves or professional associations and saying, something has gone wrong in our profession. We now have a sort of skewed way of entering the profession uh, and we need to do something about it. This is absolute pie in the sky. It's not. It's Employers are are not going to say, sorry, we we reject what is free, low-skilled work that we're being offered. And governments aren't going to say to employers, sorry, guys, you really should stop, you know, we're going to start micro-interfering with what you do at your workplace. Uh, These things have happened, though. In terms of whole professions taking this on, uh, I document in, in my book how the architecture profession in the United States changed its ways in the 1990s. They had a culture, an extreme culture of unpaid work, and it became something of a scandal. And they realized that they were using interns as a kind of disposable workforce and that sort of a longer-term approach in terms of business thinking, I mean, in terms of developing talent, the longer-term way to kind of save money and develop talent is to uh, is to have paid internships, really, or to have you know paid training programs that are more kind of extensive and rigorous. If you look at what the Googles and the Goldman Sachses of the world do, they pay their interns quite well. They see themselves as engaged in a war for talent, where they want to get the best young graduates into their companies, and they don't do these kinds of things. It's really the short-sighted employers who are engaging these kinds of practices practices, you know, they're not taking the long view. In terms of governments, governments have have been willing to intervene at times. I think, you know, the French government a few years ago took a look at these, at, at what was happening. And, uh, you know, they decided at least at three months, you have to start paying something because these periods of, of, of internship were going on and on and on. Uh, so if there's enough outcry uh, and if enough people see that what companies are effectively doing is pushing the costs on to young people and their families, even though they're benefiting from the work, I think then, you know, companies will change their ways. And again, there's a real economic business rationale as well for this. Christian, give us a practitioner's view. What do you make of what Ross is saying? Um, I pretty much agree. Um, just just stays for a couple of weeks uh, <clears throat> for a workplace, and that that's fine without paying, in my opinion. But if it goes on for longer, for a couple of months, then, then um, some sort of salary or pay would be would be needed because it's just impossible to afford it unless you you are a student at the moment but if you are a student and you go for for longer than say two weeks then you're going to miss out quite a lot of your education 
and then basically you're paying for an education which you, you, you're not getting. Heather, um, one thing that struck me as missing from Ross's description just there was the role of unions, because one of the things that we notice about the industries we're talking about, publishing, increasingly media, but also politics, is they're non-unionised. So there's not very much that workers can do to say, actually, we want better conditions for these unpaid people. No, that's right. And I was about to ask Ross whether the US unions have got involved in any of this, because it seems to me that that's one of the few ways, clearly there's no collective voice for interns, but you know that seems to me to be one of the key ways that there could be action on this is if the existing workforce said this is not acceptable. Unfortunately, yeah, unions have not taken much of a role or much of a stance in the internship boom of the last several decades. As I mentioned, with regard to the Disney program, they're upset at what's happened. Too late. It's too too late. They didn't really see this coming. Mm. Uh, And unions... You know, in the United States, certainly, but I think everywhere around the world, have had trouble with the rise of these kind of more irregular, so-called contingent work situations. Whether it's mm-hmm. whether it's interning or various types of temping, freelancing, all of these practices which have grown up uh, in the last several decades. The sort of golden age of unions, the idea of work that that most unions sort of understood and were interested in was kind of regular, sort of 40 hours a week, lifetime Mm -hmm. employment, often with a single employer, and the the range of, the the kinds of arrangements which are out there now, unions are not well equipped to deal with. And it has to do with also how workers, contingent workers themselves, see these things. They perceive themselves as free agents moving from one thing to the next. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't understand the sort of need for a union or they're sort of moving around too much geographically or career-wise to really find the right sort of union for themselves. So there are a few fields, and certainly journalism is one of them, where there is some kind of crossover between unionized workplaces and interns. And occasionally you'll see contracts, agreements, between unions and you know and labor and management, where uh, interns are mentioned in some way, or there's they're trying to at least hold down the number of interns because mm-hmm. their their main focus is on the displacement of their own workers. But in the U.S., we haven't seen anything like the involvement of of NUJ here in Britain, which has been you know I think a strong voice about combating uh, the negative influence of internships. Look, last word to you, Ross. Um, one of the things I like a lot about your book is the way that you tie in internship culture with the wider changes going on in the working world, this kind of flexibilization of labour and how that's affected middle-class white-collar workers. If we don't do something about intern culture, what happens to the rest of our working experience, do you think? I think, you know, the internship experience that people have is, is often one of their very first kind of steps into the world of work. Even if it's a fairly brief period of time, just a, just a summer or a, or a few months, uh, I think it influences the way people perceive their own labour and their understanding of themselves as workers. There's often a great willingness to, you know, to begin working for free if it if it seems like you're going to be in a good workplace and you'll get a good letter of recommendation out of it and prospects for, you know, hopefully for a full-time job. But usually after, you know, after a few months or after the second or third or fourth internship, uh, people become pretty disillusioned and that kind of voluntarist eagerness to sort of throw yourself in and, you know, learn as you go kind of disappears and you, you start understanding that you know you don't have financial independence You're, you may, you may still be depending on your parents or going deeper and deeper into debt or you know something of that of that kind so you begin to devalue your own work employers don't value your work because you know as many psychologists have found when something is free you might sort of grab it quickly you might snap it up but then you're not probably going to really invest in it or value it over time uh, so the larger effects are are I think a kind of alienation or, I mean, people become dispirited when they get caught in the sort of intern trap and that's becoming more and more common. Uh, So I think it, you know, 
hopefully it doesn't downgrading of the value of production full stop exactly yeah i mean you know hopefully it doesn't persist over you know over somebody's career over a long period but if somebody spends you know a significant portion of their time in their 20s sort of cycling between internships i think it can have you know very negative effects okay well that's it for this week's podcast Thanks to my guest, Ross Perlin, and his new book, Intern Nation, is out now from Verso. Heather Stewart and Christian Eriksson. The producer was Ian Chambers. My name's Aditya Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.